Hello, and welcome to The Think Tank. I am so glad that you're joining us for the Resilience Think Tank today. I was just saying to my guests before we got started how I have been looking forward to this conversation for months. It is totally understandable to us and other people and seems justifiable when we're going through something difficult and we have to dig deep to find our resilience and to handle it. But it gets really frustrating and confusing for a lot of people when something really great is happening and we're also struggling. So today we are going to talk about the resilience we often need in the face of success. First, I'd like to introduce to you Chantel Preston. Chantel is CEO and lead partner at Portfolia. She uses her 25 years of experience in healthcare development and strategic advisement to invest in and grow healthcare companies. Through her own experiences, failures, and successes, Chantel creates a space for women to become their best advocates, encouraging confident thought patterns and the ability to lean into challenges and risks, challenging negative self-perception issues such as imposter syndrome. Chantel, what are some signs that someone is afraid of or hesitant about success? Great question. I think that, you know, one of the things I see a lot is just self-confidence and unwillingness to take those risks. Um, you know, sometimes we are our own worst enemy in those aspects. So really, I think if I had to say one thing, it's really the lack of um, willingness to take those steps or kind of like the analysis by paralysis, just that unwilling to take that next step to success. I heard recently this idea that some people have um, are more risk philic. So if you remember back to science class, biology philic means you're attracted to it and you like it and you bond with it well. And some are more risk phobic. But I think you're right that even for people who are risk philic, when they get closer to success, they might find themselves uncharacteristically hesitating more. And that hesitation right. is a great first sign. That's right. Patty Block is founder of The Block Group. She's a business advisor and pricing expert who spent the last 17 years working with women business owners who are experts in their own fields to strategically fine tune their operations and scale their revenue for growth. Patty's passion and experience as a business advisor and owner, lobbyist, political consultant, and nonprofit exec come full circle as she turns roadblocks into building blocks for women owned businesses. Patty, what have you discovered are some signs that someone is afraid of or hesitant about success? The one I see most commonly is self-sabotage, and it's very unconscious, but that manifests as avoidance. So again, I specialize in working with women, and I see that very commonly, that as women get more success, they get nervous, and they tend to avoid things like business development and sales, and they tend to self-sabotage for a variety of reasons. And so am I understanding right that that self-sabotage you're talking about is getting more opportunity and stepping away from them or letting them go by? Exactly. Okay, great. Okay. Dr. Stephen Beeson is the founder of Practicing Excellence and is also faculty at the American Academy of Physician Leadership. He's worked with leaders all over the country to transform the culture of their organizations. Along with his team, he created a skill building center, the Clinician Experience Project, in order to drive a better physician and patient experience, clinical outcomes, and excellence in healthcare systems. Steve, in your experience, 
what are some signs that someone is afraid of or hesitant about success? Well, I, I think that, you know, I speak very personally on this, is that even as you ascend to success, um, there is this habitual, perpetual, recurrent pattern of self-doubt and imposter syndrome. And that we just don't believe that we deserve the success that we have earned. And we feel like we're living a lie. And it really undermines the joy and authenticity of an ascent. Uh, and, you know, and I struggled with that one uh, during my <laughs> professional life. And there was milestones and moments that allowed me to believe that I really am a capable clinician. I really can take care of patients. But until I got that maturation, success for me was was very, very guarded and really prevented me from, you know, stepping into the journey of becoming better and contributing more and growing more. So that's a really interesting point that imposter syndrome is not just a bummer or detracts from your joy, which is, I think, an important piece of what it does. It can also keep you from asking questions or getting better because you're because of that catch 22 of being afraid you're already worse at it than other people think you are or than you should be. And so any question is going to let people in on the secret. Yeah. It, it's like, it's like belief in yourself and confidence in yourself is your tailwind for progress. And if you don't have that, then the ability to, to take action, to take the next step in a success journey is really compromised. And so now that you say it that way, I see it in the medical students that I teach and the residents that I teach in clin in clinical practice. They're often, they have a question that's a good question, but they're afraid that it somehow unmasks a deficit in their knowledge that they shouldn't have. And right. so they don't ask their good question. Right. <laughs> until I really push them. So Steve, I'd like to start with our big question with you, if you don't mind. And the question that I really want to get to is two parts, and it is, what is so hard to navigate about success and what strategies have you used or seen other leaders use that help get past that roadblock? Well, there, there's, there's two stories that I think reflect some of the challenge with success. Uh, one comes from the brilliant professor at Yale, Lori Santos, who has spoken about uh, the culture of happiness. And she discovered at Yale that that happiness is inversely proportional to GPA at students at Yale. And it, and it speaks to the larger issue that students that were achieving, accomplishing, successful were the least happy of all the students. And I think the realization was they were relying on an achievement to define their value in this world. And that was a quick pulse of dopamine. And soon as it was gone, it was freaking out about the next midterm and freaking out about the next, you know, um, yeah. work harder. And so, you know, I, I think the, the learning from that for me that I've seen uh, with people who have gone through life with great contributions in business and medicine and other places is that they don't define themselves by particular accomplishment. It is it is the journey to better and more contribution that that is the transcendent element of of a healthy pursuit of success 
another quick story is a buddy of mine uh, founded a company. He was part of a founding group. Uh, they, uh, and during their, their pre-investment days were literally eating Weber's and bologna and couldn't keep the lights on until they got an investment and they had to innovate. They had to create, they had to scrap, they had to grit. And finally throughout the next years after getting the investment, they had their IPO and they're all just fishing and golfing now worth tens of millions of dollars. And so I golf with this guy. Uh, and you know, I asked him, I said, so what's, what's been the best part? And he said to me, when we were struggling to keep the lights on, because it was the innovation, it was the struggle, it was the creativity, it was the build, uh, it was the journey, the process of building and creating a company that was most, most enriching. And as soon as he achieved his success. He was worth tens of millions of dollars, but he had the SEC quarterly earnings and all the other stuff that makes it not fun, despite the fact that he had achieved objective equivalent to the A for the for the Yale student. So I think and I have seen and experienced the same thing that that success and management of it is not about achieving an objective. It's about building a mastery journey that makes you immensely proud of who you are where you're contributing to something in the world. And it is something that allows you to continue to grow forever. And if that results in great financial success and tens of millions of dollars, awesome. But if it doesn't, you've still got, man, I got a good life. Look at this. <laughs> Look at all this stuff that I did. And I think that's a far more effective way to approach success as opposed to, I'm going to re rely on a number, a, a pile of acorns, or a grade or an accomplishment because those are fleeting uh, and they just make you rely on the next one like a drug hit. So that's my life lesson <laughs> in a few So the, the obstacle that you've noticed most is when people define success as that outwardly demonstrable metric that other people decide on and it's it's too fleeting and it's too it's too transient right it's trans and it's transactional it's a little bit like a healthcare system saying we want to improve the patient experience and we will define our success by the 95th percentile on the patient experience as opposed to how do we build a process of continuous improvement where we bring kindness and compassion and connection to every patient every time. And that is what it means to be us. The consequence of which will be the 99th percentile, but it, it's about building process as opposed to focusing on a, on a number or an objective. Uh, yeah, th there's a, there's a great quote and I don't want to hog time here, but there's a great quote that I read from James Clear, who's brilliant, uh, atomic habits. And his quotes, his two quotes that I love are number one, those who have the most fun win. And the journey is the best part. So it's about building the journey. I think that's a transcendent engine to success that allows you to enjoy it and contribute and not freak out because of your quarterly earnings. So, yeah, I agree. So Patty, I want to bring it to you because you work with women on a lot of things in your practice, but one of your focuses is on helping people get exit ready. 
And yet I've seen you nodding along while Stephen's been saying that it is not about the tens of millions of dollars that, you know, it's not about the pile of acorns, which I think is a great analogy for this. So what obstacles do you see to people actually jumping in and grabbing their own success? And what strategies do you help people who are on that journey find so that they can get over themselves, whatever that means? Yes, I was definitely nodding along as I'm listening to Stephen. It's um, that journey, especially as we get older and we have that perspective of looking back and what we personally have experienced, as well as I've seen all the experiences of all the women that I've worked with. And everyone is unique. The challenges that I see is that we tend to fall into believing stereotypes. So it's either Scrooge McDuck or Oliver Twist, and there's nothing in between. And we don't, as women, we don't want to appear salesy or pushy or aggressive. And so a lot of times we really are controlling our thinking, our behavior, and that is makes it very difficult to navigate, especially when we're successful, because then it feels like we're bragging. And Chantal and I are both in Texas, and we have a saying here that it's not bragging if it's true. And that is, that's about building perceived value in the mind of your buyer. And that's part of what I teach is if you can believe it yourself, that you have the ability to go on this journey, to be successful, and you don't avoid what it takes to be successful, you don't do that self-sabotaging, then if you believe it yourself, you're able to communicate it better. And when you do that, and people start to understand the real value that you bring, it changes everything. And then you start looking at your own success in a completely different way. So one of the strategies that works really well for women is defining success by how it benefits those around us. So it's not all about us. And for a lot of women, that makes us feel better, that we're not just, quote, bragging, that we're not talking about ourselves in a competitive manner. We always want to think of ourselves as collaborative. So that strategy of thinking about how does my success affect those in my orbit and how can I talk about that in a really positive way so that everyone understands what a great thing this really is. I know that a lot of the people who are with us today are in service industries, you know, or in the youth development space or in healthcare or in other, um, in energy. And just looking at some of the people who are here right now. And Stephen, I don't know if, if you're thinking this too, but I'm thinking about it's true also people in healthcare, gender notwithstanding, I think that we think this is supposed to be a calling. So how do you put a price on a calling? How do you think about, and, and that idea that you mentioned of and how does this benefit me and how does it benefit everybody around us that I love that strategy. And I really want to emphasize that. And, and, you know, I, I hate the concept of selflessness because that takes you entirely out of the equation. That and is really powerful. Chantel, in your work, 
which I know is also recently focused on women, but you have also been in healthcare and been in helping people with strategic development. What's your answer to this question about why success is so hard to navigate and what strategies help you actually get the win? Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to follow both Patty and Stephen and kind of add a few things in regards to my own life. So it is hard. It's hard for women, uh, but it's hard for everyone for success. You think once you achieve that success, you've, you know, you've reached all of your goals and objectives in life. I'm just going to tell a quick story about my background. Uh, my main business was brain injury rehab. You know, uh, we loved helping people. We had a purpose and we were helping people in the worst times of their lives. Well, as with any business, you know, we got to a point we wanted to, um, grow. And so we decided to sell our business. You know, this was something I'd been looking for my entire life. I had reached the pinnacle of success. We sold our business. We, you know, as Stephen mentioned, we had had the the funds that we had always looked for. Um, unfortunately, it was the darkest time of my life at the same time. Why? Because what's next? You know, society created success as certain components. That wasn't necessarily my success, but I thought that that's what I needed to achieve. So Patty mentioned a minute ago about defining your own success. What does success mean? Um, I think it means different things to different people, especially in different times of our lives, too. When I was younger, what I thought was success is very different than what I feel is success now. Um, so, again, I think you have to look at, A, what does success mean to you? But also, you know, what is your overall purpose? You know, success looks different in everybody's eyes. Um, so strategies for success, you know, what I realized is that what was important to me wasn't necessarily the money. It was having that purpose of helping people. Okay. And so that became my success. Hence what I do now in regards to helping other individuals or companies, you know, achieve their ultimate goals, you know, maximize their success. So again, I think you have to look at what does success mean to you, but also, you know, defining that the way you want to define it, not what society is defining it as. And again, look at that and find out what your purpose is. Um, so I hope that answered your question with a little bit of a story there, but I do think we all go through those different phases because as, as Stephen mentioned, you know, it's kind of like that once you reach success, you want more and more and more and more. So how do you continue to be energized in a way that again, you will continue to be happy throughout your life and find that purpose? It does answer my question. Um, speaking of questions, I'd like to invite everybody who's here to put questions you have either directly to me in a direct message, if you'd like to stay anonymous or into the chat for everyone. And Chantel, because you mentioned your personal story, I'd like to push on it just a little bit more. When you had on paper something that you'd been aiming for and was a, you would have called a success and it contributed to the darkness and the struggle, could you talk about your feelings about that? Were you able to say that out loud, to reach out to other people for help? How did it impact you? Uh, you know, a great question. Um, you know, it, it was a hard, it was a very hard time because as Stephen mentioned, you know, you're supposed to be the happiest you've ever been in life. You've met all your goals. You've reached that, that ultimate success. I felt so empty inside. Now what? Now, what am I going to be reaching for? Who was I? So there was a lot of emotional things I went through and it probably took me about a year to come out of it as to what's next. What am I ever going to do within my life that reaches that same success that society uh, has, has said that that's the ultimate? Um, it, it, it was hard. It was hard to talk about it. It was hard to go through it. Um, again, it took me a while to figure out why was I in that dark space when everyone thought I should be the happiest I'd ever been in my life. 
Um, so again, and I think it's important for us to have those conversations and as people, again, reach those pinnacles of, you know, life's not over. There are more things to achieve in life. And again, what's the ultimate success for me? I realized it wasn't the money. It was the purpose. It was helping people. I loved helping people. And I didn't see that when I was in it. But once you remove yourself and you take a look back and you grow a little bit as an individual, you realize there's more to life than money, power, control. Now it's about how can I really help people? And that's what I really enjoyed. So I chose to continue my life work and actually helping people. And so again, being able to find that next pursuit of happiness is what really brought me out of that. I saw an interview recently with Jada Pinkett Smith, who is an accomplished actress and poet and musician. Uh, For people that don't know the name, she's also married to Will Smith. She had a book come out recently and she talks in it extensively and very authentically and in a raw way about her own struggles with mental health. And in the interview, the interviewer asked What made you decide to do that? And she said, I wrote about it because of every person who ever messaged me about my mental health, about my own mental health, telling me I had such a good life. I had no right to struggle. And she said, I can live with that criticism because I have the support I need and the strength I need and the medicine I need. She's really transparent. She said, but there's too many people who can't stand up against that. We have to challenge that idea. And so just us having this conversation right now for everyone in the sound of our voices now and, and, you know, virtually in perpetuity, just to know that this is something that might happen. It's like knowing about a side effect. When I see a patient in the office and I ask them to start a new medication, I run them through the common side effects, not because I think it will make the cough or the incontinence or the nausea easier, but they won't be shocked by it and they won't feel suspicious In my work, I talk all about how every time we navigate a change, our brain says, wait, loss, distrust, discomfort are these natural reactions. And I just want to get rid of the distrust that somehow something happened that, you know, their doctor didn't know about or that they didn't expect or that somehow there's something deeper going wrong or maybe it's not the medicine, they're sick. So by talking about this side effect of success, we're already opening a conversation so that people can say, oh yeah, I heard that this might happen. I heard that this was a potential side effect. I, just real quick, Debbie, I, I just, you know, you feel guilty. You feel guilty that you feel that way because how, how am I supposed to be? I was supposed to be the happiest I've ever been. And here I, I'm, you know, so that guilt comes out and then it just digs you further into that hole. So again, and I appreciate talking about it and understanding it's great to set your business up or set, you know, but be prepared mentally too, because that's a big component of some of those successes. Guilt. And I would, I would name another emotion, which is shame. Yeah. Shame is a really strong driver for us too. It drives us right underground away from authentic communication with other people because now maybe they will think of us what we currently think of us, which is I'm obviously a terrible person. Liz says in the chat, the emotions around exiting successfully are exactly what I experienced when I closed a business because I couldn't make it what I wanted to be. So failing in her opinion, but same fears, emotions, and questions. And I think that's exactly it, Liz. I think that understanding, first of all, that endings are change and change is hard. That's what this whole think tank is about, but that ending something, whether you would, or you think other people would count it as a success or a failure, you can have the same difficult, often negative emotions in either direction. 
So everyone has mentioned imposter syndrome. And there's a question that came just to me that I want to ask about that. Anybody have any actual strategies for overcoming one's own imposter syndrome? I'll just say just real quick. I'm sorry, Stephen. I'll say real quick. Um, one of the strategies that I utilize was really reframing how I spoke to myself, you know, building that confidence, you know, um, again, we can be our own worst enemy, but self-sabotage. Um, so really reframing how I spoke to myself, it gave me a better indication of confidence. Um, you know, when those positive thoughts were producing positive results for me. And so that's a lot of the way how I overcome that imposter thinking I'm not good enough or, you know, I don't deserve that. Okay. Patty, what did you want to say? Well, I think what Chantal said summed it up extremely well, that words are powerful and the words we would never, especially as women, we would never speak to someone else the way we speak to ourselves. And the head trash that's going on in our minds is very limiting. And that is part of the self-sabotage that I mentioned at the very beginning. We don't realize that the way we're talking to ourselves or what we're thinking and how ingrained that is, maybe it's stuff we heard when we were a kid, maybe it's something we've grown to believe. It doesn't mean it's true right? It's quote true. It means that's what you're believing and every belief and every behavior serves a purpose. You may not realize what the purpose is, but in many cases, it is self-sabotaging what you're doing going forward. So reframing is something that I talk a lot about as well, because, you know, it's that same concept about bragging. If you believe that you're bragging, you are going to stay silent. But if you believe that you're building value in someone else's mind, you're going to find a way to craft your message. So it's that same concept of words are powerful and they can work against us and often do. So I think that first step is reframing. And by that, I'm, I don't just mean that trite kind of, I'll just tell myself something different. It's more about your inner confidence, your inner belief, your inner strength that we all have and letting that promote, you know, promote that so that it comes out so that others can see it. And they're not going to see you as bragging or arrogant, or they're going to see you as confident. So that's, I think, one of the most powerful ways to overcome imposter syndrome and to build on the strength that you already have. I have a colleague who told me that he has a lot of heart to hearts with himself in the shaving mirror in the bathroom, right? When he's shaving and he has to look himself in the eye, that's when he recognized it wasn't really on purpose that he was talking about himself and to himself in some pretty negative ways. And he talked to his partner about it a lot. And she said, it it makes me uncomfortable to hear you talk that way, not only about my partner, but you know, people tell our kids all the time how much they look like you and how much they're like you. And they really are proud of that. I would never want to hear anyone, you or anyone, speak about you that way in a way when they could hear. And he gave him an idea and he printed out a picture of his kids and he covered the bottom two thirds of his bathroom mirror with it. Mm. And so now he finds that even though the, it's only talking in his head, it's only that narrative on the inside, he is much 
nicer and more respectful to himself because it feels like his kids are listening. Wow. It's very clever. Yeah, I like them. You, you shouldn't tell you brought you brought up a really uh, compelling point about um, you know the the tension between I have succeeded and yet my my cup is not full and it's creating despair. And my curiosity, and I don't pretend to have an answer on this, is that the wisdom of who do I want to be in this life? And uh, what do I hold most dear? And what are the what are the things and behaviors that are consistent with that? So we're living in a purpose that is consistent with why we're on this planet, and we're fueling those sets of behaviors to fuel uh, advancement and success. So we're living in it. So if if making a difference in the lives of others is your purpose, identity, and compass, I will do things forevermore, success, pre-IPO, post-IPO, pre-acquisition, post-acquisition, or whatever it may be, I will continue to hold that as a part of my identity and daily action and remember that is who I am. And I can never deviate from who I am because if I drop who I am, then I will be left uh, living out of accordance with what I believe. And many believe that that's the source of depression and that I've become somebody that I is inconsistent with what I hold most dear. And so this idea of you finding and discovering, making a difference in the lives of others is who I am. I must go back to that. And I can't let the, the, the acquisition take away my identity. Uh, and I, and, and my question that I was going to get to was those are all retrospective learnings, meaning I went through that crap it really sucked and i came up with the wisdom that i need to recapture my identity and live in accordance with it can we do that proactively because <laughs> all of us have been through life and have been have a winding road right and you know can you tell your kids figure out who you are live in accordance with that take action to pursue that and from that objective measures of success will manifest i can assure you uh, um, but nobody, every, everybody points their ladder to a pile, that pile of acorns mm -hmm. and they sabotage who they are, what they really believe in. And they wonder why I'm now making a lot of money and I am miserable. How in the hell did that happen? And so it's not like there've been yeah. a bunch of movies about this or books written about this idea. <laughs> I know. I how know. could we possibly known? <laughs> Stephen, you bring up a really good point, and that's a point of identity. And I wanted to actually tie this a little bit, the imposter syndrome part of the conversation and the identity piece, because in our last think tank, we were talking about how do you get somebody who's really, really resistant to an idea to open to it? We talked about the difference between um, a preference, a belief, and a value, and how a preference is like mayo or miracle whip. I might really be really strongly main team mayonnaise, but all I need to change my mind is a positive experience with Miracle Whip. A, a belief is something that's not only based on experience, it's also based, based on what I feel is data or information. And so to change a belief, I need an experience and new information, but a value is tied to my identity. And one of the problems that we often have is that that imposter syndrome is tied to our identity. 
our identity may be formed in childhood based on things that we heard or perceptions that we had. Our identity is of someone who isn't that smart or isn't great with money or whatever it is. And so the change that it takes for us to shift our belief about ourselves is pretty profound. We actually have to be able to let go of a little bit of how we would identify of how we would define ourselves. And a lesson that we that we really talked a lot about that I learned in our last think tank is that if you want to change a value, you can't just talk yourself into it. You have to you have to know and speak with someone who has a lot of overlapping identity with you who used to believe what you believe and now believe something different. And so in that case, people like us who can look backwards at the experiences we've had and say, okay, but here's something I figured out. For the people who relate to us the most, the people that we bother to show, I respect you, I believe in a lot of the things that you do, um, I connect with you, we can be a bridge. Not everybody has to learn this in retrospect. And I hope that this conversation, among others, is a way for people to get that. But I do think that we have to recognize that ending imposter syndrome isn't like I'm going to start flossing twice a day. It's not just like I have it. I'm going to pick up. We have to be willing. And I know Patty in the work that you do, because I've worked with you and, and Chantal, I get a sense in the work that you do too. You really make people investigate what their beliefs and identity values are about it so that they're able to look at them with some perspective and shift them. After a lot of conversations with individuals that you ask them about their values and frankly, it goes back to their childhood. Well, what are your values? And it's interesting how many people never sit down and really think about what's their own values. We just kind of innate take those from, you know, our parents and the parents before us. And so it's really interesting to have those conversations with people to say, no, what are your values? Because most people never sit down and really think through those. Yes. And I'll add to that. One of the pieces that I focus on because I do so much work around pricing. And as women, we tend to undervalue ourselves and underprice our services. That in addition to what are your values, it's really a deep dive into what do you believe? Why do you believe that? And what is your relationship with money? And that also goes back to childhood. And sometimes when I ask those deeper questions about specifically about money, about success, it's really interesting as people start thinking and analyzing and um, understanding that what they believe may not be, quote, true. It may not align with who they are, but it's an old belief that they've carried with them. So, yeah, it's very interesting to see how when people really stop and take the time to do that, what comes up. Stephen, I want to just ask you, when you think about imposter syndrome, and I actually would argue that medical training in particular breeds and fosters imposter syndrome. Um, and because there is very much an idea that you should always know more than you know. And so I wondered can you pinpoint anything you did to start identifying to yourself as an excellent clinician, since so much of your work is around that, as opposed to identifying as somebody who was just keeping up or should know more? Well, I think that there were two key events in my life in retrospect that helped me shape how I felt about 
my ability to contribute to the well-being of patients through clinical practice. Um, one of them is uh, what people said to me. And, and I remember one case in particular where I was a young family medicine physician and one of our cardiologists uh, who is a very accomplished uh, academic cardiologist that did all the impossible caths. He was, he was the one that everybody went to in a tough, tough case. It was a little bit intimidating. And I remember once two years into practice, he uh, called me out of an exam room while I was in with a patient uh, and called my office. And he wanted to talk to me about something. So I'm walking in my office going, um, the jig is up. Yeah. <laughs> right. And and he says to me, Steve, I just want to let you know that patient you sent to me for atypical chest pain and palpitations, perfect workup. I just wanted to let you know exactly how I would have done it. And the patient loves you. And I just want to call you out on that. And so... So we have extrinsic cues that can help shape our identity. Uh, and uh, the, the others is allowing myself to act in accordance with what I believe to be right in my identity, uh, meaning I believe that kindness and compassion for every patient every time is who I am. So every time I take an action and I get a response with a patient, it is this autocatalytic feedback that solidifies my identity as a kind, compassionate clinician. And these continuous feedback loops that come extrinsically from people that observe things by virtue of us doing behaviors that are consistent with the things that represent our identity and allowing us to take action consistent with our beliefs that solidify that identity. And so, um, I think in my, my personal and professional life now, not only is the retrospective wisdom of um, I'm good and I'm able to make a difference and I'm allowing my belief system of how I treat patients, how I treat others and how I lead people to guide everything that I do and, and how I operate. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, that through that process, uh, I realized the impact of giving cues to others to help them affirm their identity. Uh, that has now become a big part of my realization of life is to seeing people doing amazing things, pulling them aside and say, you have no idea the impact that you're making. I learned from there's you a great Ted single, talk. Yeah. Every, every single second. So that that's, that's sort of my retrospective yeah. learning from, from that journey. There's a great TED talk uh, that I really like on that called The Power of One. One person in one minute made an impression on this human being who gives this TED talk a couple of different times and really like less than oh one minute. God. Before I get to the last question, I want to ask each of you, I just want to summarize a few things you've said. And I want to remind people that success is hard because to our, in part because to our brains, success also represents a big change either a change in our identity, like I talked about in terms of imposter syndrome, or a change in our circumstance, a change in our reputation. There's all kinds of ways that it represents change. And so our amygdala is saying, wait, 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 cool, but could we die though with every change, even the good ones? 
I really appreciated Steve's strategy where he said, think of success and the management of it, maybe not as achieving anything, but as building a mastery journey. And in that way, you might be succeeding now. And those things that come along might just be markers of your success and not actually a big change. And Chantel and Patty also talked about that, but in slightly different ways that I think might be useful. Patty said, remember to consider that your success doesn't only benefit you. So it is great that it benefits you. And who else? What are the ands? So that you'll see that your success is not just nice, it, it's vital. And when you see that your success is vital, that can really, really make a difference in your ability to overcome the obstacles in your way and get it. And Chantel pointed us back to something that we have been talking about in every episode of the Think Tank, and that is purpose. It is our purpose that helps us be resilient. If you don't know why you would bother digging your car out from a huge snowbank because it doesn't work anyway and you're, you can't stand the car and you're just gonna have it towed to the dump, you won't dig it out of the huge snowbank. There's no purpose to it. But when your purpose is to in some way make the world more how you want and need it to be because like Stephen was saying, it's true to who you fundamentally are, you will be able to overcome just about anything that stands in your way and you'll know why. You'll know what to keep aiming for. It doesn't guarantee us that we will get there, but it does show us where North is on our compass. Before we end, I'd like to ask you each a delightful question, I think. And that is, how do you celebrate your successes? Do you? And how do you? Patty, can I start with you? Sure. So after I do a little happy dance, it's always a call to family. And wanting to share something that was so positive again, because I want not only, you know, my first calls to my adult kids. So not only do I want them to know that something really great has happened and how happy I am, but also it's part of my purpose as a role model, as a contributor to society and to my community, that I also want to share my happiness. So it's always a call with family first and then with friends. Terrific. Steve, how about you? Well, you know, I, I, I love to reflect and soak it in, uh, listen to music and uh, relive it and allow it to, you know, sort of solidify uh, my basic fundamental reasons for being. But I agree with Patty. I think sharing successes and telling the stories of, making a difference in the world. And and for me, it's always, the measure is always what happened that allowed a difference to be made. It, it's never made this much, accomplished this objective. It is about how did my reason for being play out in a real witness of a way? Uh, yeah, and sometimes there's money that comes from that and sometimes there's not. But, but that allows me to have much wider aperture in uh, success and not rely on, oh, didn't get the deal. So that wasn't successful. And so, uh, but, but, but sharing the story with people that you love is uh, also a fun part to, to celebrate. Chantel, what do you do? Great question. You know, um, I'm, I'm a big one for, I, I celebrate all successes, even the small victories. Um, 
but you know, when it comes to it, you know, really in my world, it's about acknowledging the people that helped me be successful. Um, you know, I've learned throughout my life that, you know, it's more fun to be successful with, with others than by myself. And so it's really acknowledging and, um, celebrating with those around me, uh, whether it's family, whether it's peers, whether it's employees. And, you know, again, I want to make sure that everyone gets the same credit because, in my world, everything that I do, it takes a team. It's not just an individual. So, you know, really acknowledging that team and celebrating with them. It is possible that you're all better people than I am because my go-to celebration is some sort of thrill seeking or adventure, like hang gliding or zip lining or a water park <laughs> or something like that. Cause I just like, for me, that attenuates the dopamine and I get to have more of it longer. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you all so much for joining me today. And thanks to everybody who's listening now or online. Resilience is not just for the sake of getting through hard things. It's to actually create the life and the world we want. Have a great day, everybody.